3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is 7am on Tuesday the 8th of August. My name is Carnegie and I'm joined today in the studio by Fung and Ivka. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are we all? Feeling great? Yeah, great. It's very eerie outside. We were just talking about it's foggy. I do like eerie. I like things that are just slightly eerie. Yeah, I kept thinking I could see a full moon, but it was just a street light. Yeah. <laughs> I was getting, I was getting but it is confused. that vibe of like, you know what? Let's just say it was. <laughs> yeah. Everything else was was sort of all part of that like landscape, like foggy, dark. Yeah, exactly. It's mm. a vibe, you know. I think there's meant to be two supermoons this month. Um, One was last week, which I saw, and it was beautiful. I watched it rise over the Queensland Ocean. It was so spectacular. And there's supposed to be another one that's meant to be blue, Um, but I'm not sure when. But I'm a big fan of supermoons. Eerie. (laughs) You know what I mean? All right, we'll we'll keep an eye out for the... The super blue moon. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Did anyone do anything exciting this weekend? Exciting. No, I can't say I did anything. (laughs) I can't say I did anything. um, Worded the question. Exactly. (laughs) Did anyone do anything this weekend? Yes, I I saw a myth film. It started... Uh, it was a documentary, actually, an Australian documentary called The Carnival, and it follows this family of showies, show people. They go to, like, over 52 shows a year, um, kind of like carnies, I guess. Um, but it's one family and it follows them for seven years. It was really interesting because it went through bushfires and COVID and how it impacted that business. But really it was just about this family structure and loyalty and being part of the family business. It was good. That's really interesting. So over seven years. Yeah. That's a really Yeah, from long... 2015. So there's four children in the family of like its generations. They've been doing it for 70 years, um, this one family. And you see they've just had a new baby at the start of it. I think a, a surprise new baby because they're quite younger. Um, and then at the end, there's a seven-year-old running around. So it was... And just to see the like Australian landscape yeah. from kind of a different lens, and yeah, it was it was interesting. It's went funny when you said like seven years, and then you said twenty fifteen. Like in my it mind, it doesn't add up. Right? <laughs> How is that? Yeah. Mm, it's eight years. Yeah. Now. <laughs> How? Yeah. And if you think about like what's happened since then, the world is a drastically different place. Yes. since twenty fifteen. Yes, it's, it's wild in like every way possible. Really, it's. Yeah, it doesn't – if I think back what I was doing in 2015, it doesn't feel that long ago and yet everything is different. Mm. Exactly. And I feel like our brains haven't caught up to that necessarily, um, which is why it's like 2015. Who knows? 
how long ago that was. <laughs> I have no idea. All right. Um, let's talk about what's coming up on the show this morning. We are starting the show this morning with an interview at 7.15 with Kaz Dawson, CEO of CCMB. Kaz will be joining us to talk about Dying to Know Day, an annual not-for-profit campaign enabling Australians to improve their death literacy. And Kaz will be taking us through what that means. After that, we'll be revisiting a conversation that uh, Annie McLaughlin had with Shirley Winton from No Orcas Coalition Victoria. Uh, this conversation happened on Solidarity Breakfast over the weekend and it was to mark the 78th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb uh, in Hiroshima and also to, I guess, reflect on that event in the context of Orcas as well. And at 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking with uh, Nisha Tapliel, who is an academic at the University of Newcastle, along with Sabah Zaidi Abdi, who is a journalist from India who has lived in Australia for the last 30 years. Uh, They'll be joining us to talk about the escalating violence against Muslims in India um, in light of the current extremely right-wing government. So that's our show for this morning. We will be right back with the news headlines after this. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. These are our news headlines for this morning, Tuesday the 8th of August. The Matildas won against Denmark last night in a knockout round, 2-0, which means that Australia is now in the World Cup quarterfinals happening this Saturday. It's still to be decided who will be playing, but the game will be on this Saturday at 5pm. Uh, The New South Wales birth inquiry into birth trauma, which we spoke about on last week's show, has now extended the submissions to people outside of New South Wales. The inquiry, which started last month, was triggered after 30 mothers made complaints about Wagga Wagga-based hospital, including allegations some were forcibly held down, given inadequate pain relief, or told they would be induced to free up beds. It follows Australia's largest study of women's birthing experiences, which found in December last year that one in 10 women felt violated, disrespected or abused during birth. If you have had an experience with birth trauma that you would like to submit to the inquiry, you can do so by the 11th of August. For more information on the inquiry and how to submit, you can go to birthtrauma.org.au. And for some really wholesome news from Zimbabwe, Mental health resources in Zimbabwe have been quite scarce and they've started to use the Friendship Bench, which is one-to-one therapy sessions with a trained grandmother delivered on a wooden bench. Hundreds of grandmothers on Friendship Benches in Zimbabwe and beyond are helping tackle mental health challenges in community using talk therapies. It's been used to expand mental health outreach in a country with about a dozen psychiatrics in a population of approximately 15 million people. The program, um, and the oh, sorry, the program uh, 
is has been incredibly successful. There are close to now a hundred peer review studies on different aspects of the friendship bench, including its effectiveness. Research has found significant improvement in participants with depression who receive therapy from a trained grandmother. At six months, participants who interacted with these lay health workers were, according to a range of indicators, including fear, anger, and sleep patterns, better off than those who received therapy from a community mental health nurse or psychologist, um, which I thought was really nice. All right, um, we are now going to play you a track. Yes, yeah, so this is by local singer-songwriter and rapper TK Maita, and this next track is from her newest album, Sweet Justice, which will be released in November. Uh, this track is called Ringling.
That was TK Mater with her song Ringaling. Keep an eye out for her new album called Sweet Justice, which will come out later this year. We'll be back with our interview with Kaz Dawson right after these messages. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Kaz Dawson is CEO of CCNB, an independent, not-for-profit, community-led organisation focusing on supporting people, their families and carers to navigate the health and social care systems. Kaz's leadership experience spans children's services, early childhood education and community care, um, and bringing her marketing brand and communications expertise to the organisation. She is passionate and committed to helping people live better by simplifying and enabling wellbeing. Today, Tuesday 8th of August, is Dying to Know Day, an annual not-for-profit campaign enabling this and empowering Australians to improve their deathless literacy, which will start important conversations around end of life with friends, family and support systems. Kaz Dawson joins us on the show this morning to tell us more about Dying to Know Day. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Kaz. Good morning, everyone. Happy Dying to Know Day. (laughs) Uh, Can you start by telling us a bit about Dying to Know Day and what it's trying to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. So there's some really good statistics that tell us 90% of Australians know that we should probably do some planning for end of life. If you think about how much planning goes into having a baby or getting married or other big milestones, death is something that happens to all of us and all of us are bereaved to somebody at some point in time. But despite the fact that nine in 10 of us know we should do some planning, only about 35% of people actually have done planning. And that's because a whole range of reasons. It's because um, sometimes death can be very taboo to talk about or confronting for people to talk about. Also, there's a bit to it and people don't always know where to start. So Dying to Know Day is designed to 
tackle all those things. It's really about giving people the knowledge and the understanding and the self-confidence to be able to talk to the people they know and love about what they would like for their end end of life and for that to be a reciprocal conversation so that even if you don't really mind what happens to you after you die, for the people that are left and want to be able to spend that time sort of thinking about and remembering you, it doesn't become a complex process to farewell you when you die. Mm, Totally. Can you explain to uh, our listeners what death literacy is and why it's important? Yeah, of course. So death literacy is really having the knowledge and the understanding about the death system. And the death system sounds weird and a bit scary, but it's really about um, knowing how to uh, navigate things like the public health system. So when you're dying or if somebody you know dies, there's things that happen in the public health system. There's also things around death to do with law. Many of you would know or have experience or have heard stories about people who died without a will and that being more complicated or creating sort of rifts between families. So there's a whole range of these things that we sort of refer to as the death system or the things that happen around dying. And so death literacy is having the knowledge and the information and the ability to talk about about those things openly so that you can navigate through it more easily. Mm, Especially at a time when you're, like, if you're grieving someone uh, you know and love, it's a vulnerable time as is and systems are often overcomplicated and hard to access. So it's great to get those conversations started early. Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely one of the things we talk about in um, Dying to Know Days. Our you know, our campaign motto this year is um, Get Dead Set. Uh, and we talk about the need, how it's really important that everyone gets dead set at any age because even though we might think, oh, I'm younger and I you know, haven't bought a house or I don't have a huge amount of savings, we also know that there are other things that happen around death. Like um, we're talking to a lovely woman the other day who had been bereaved by her husband when her husband died and she was saying I didn't realize until after I'd had a funeral and he was cremated that he wanted to be buried and so yeah and so she had this sort of terrible guilt around that which is sad I mean she's obviously working now to make sure that he's remembered in other ways but I think this idea that we when we're having in the the peak of our grief, having to make decisions around what happens, if you already know the answers to those or if the person who's died has left really nice, clear instructions for everyone, it just makes it so much easier. And you can, I guess, avoid having to have some of those really difficult decisions at a time when, as you say, you're already enduring what is at times incredibly great sadness or really traumatic experiences. Mm, A friend of mine recently has gone overseas for an extended amount of time and she was telling me about preparing a will before she left and I was taken aback being like in my 20s and not really something I'd considered but I think having those conversations start at any age is like a really good reminder because unfortunately anything can happen. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some things in that, you know, it's always a tragic when somebody dies, but there are some things where young people die where it's a more important question. So, for example, for some older people or people who are dying from chronic disease or illness, it's harder for them to donate their organs or their tissues. Whereas Mm -hmm. for young people, that can be a legacy that if people do want to donate their organs, that they would want to make sure that that happened and so that some people could benefit from what was a really sad situation. But if you haven't made those intentions clear in the right ways, depending on which state you live in, um, it can be, that could be some of your wishes that you would feel really strongly about, but maybe that don't get carried through. And so I think that's one that's actually in some ways more relevant to young people. Mm, And a great reminder to anyone who would like 
like to be an organ donor that you can register, at least in Victoria. I received a little card a few years ago, so it's a good thing that uh, I know people kind of put off thinking you don't need to, but if that is something that you're wanting to do, I think it's a really good start. Uh, Kaz, do you have insights into why people do often feel equipped to start conversations around these end-of-life plans? Yeah, I think it's really interesting, actually, because it differs for different people. I think for some people it is that it is it, death is a bit taboo. We don't want to talk about it. It's too sad. It's too hard to imagine. Um, and I think the other big barrier that we hear people talk about is it's very complicated. I don't know where to start. I don't want to have to go and get a lawyer and make a will or, um, you know, I, I don't want to think about those things. I don't. I used to live in New South Wales and now I live in Victoria and I don't know what the rules are about enduring guardianship. So there's some complexity around it which is why we talk about that idea of death literacy and helping people have the knowledge and understanding the language that they need. But I think um, one of the challenges that we see around uh, death and this, I guess, idea that death is very taboo is actually quite a westernised culture, modern Western culture idea. If we look at other cultures around the world, there are some cultures that really do death quite beautifully. I mean, it's absolutely always sad, but sometimes there are a lot of customs and traditions and processes that surround death. So if we look at some of the traditions in Maori culture or Jewish people who sit shiver, there's a whole range of cultures where there are some really lovely customs that people can observe to help navigate their grief. And I think one of the amazing things about living in Australia is that we have this incredibly multicultural society and we appreciate that in lots of different ways. You know, we love that we can have Thai for dinner tonight and Italian tomorrow night and we get to enjoy the cultures of the world. And I think that when we talk about dying to know day and wanting to understand what a, a good death, and I say that in inverted commas, a good death might look like, we actually have so many people that we can draw experiences from to get an idea of what good death might look like for us. And so I think that's a really, the, the more conversations we can have about death, the more we normalise it for people. And so then it doesn't matter so much whether it's an emotional barrier or a practicality barrier. We open up the dialogue that those people can work, all of us can then work through that process and think, okay, what would a good death look like for me? Or what would a good death of my partner or husband or, um, you know, parent or sister or brother look like? I'm going to have a conversation with them so I can ensure that their end of life is the way they want it and that mine is the way I would want it for it to be people. the people I've left behind. Yeah, I think uh, talking openly and sharing can only help everyone involved in this. Um, There's new research that shows that compassionate communities, which is an innovative model of -of end-of-life care, can save the healthcare system over $500,000 over six months. Can you describe compassionate communities a bit more for our listeners and what benefits there are in this sort of community-led approach? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a great quote that um, I read last week um, from a researcher who had said uh, that in the old days, uh, death used to be a social event with a medical element. And what's happened is death has become a really medicalised event that sometimes has a social element to it. And I don't mean social like let's all go out and get on it this weekend. I mean the idea that it's about relationships and communication and community. What compassionate communities is designed to, is designed, oh sorry, and what's happening as a result of this, I guess, increased hospitalisation or medicalisation of death is that we as a community are losing our death literacy. We're losing our ability to know what to do and know what to say. You know, we often think of times when someone's died and you feel for them and you say, I just don't know what to say or I don't know how I can help. 
And so it's a skill as a community that we're losing. And so connected communities, which is the model that's in Western Australia who did the research that you're talking about, but um, compassionate communities as a concept is the idea that we want to empower people to relearn those skills to be able to support people in the community who are caring for dying people, are dying, or have experienced death and bereavement. So we know that we're people who are, for example, dying or they've been or they're caring for somebody who's dying, if they have a network of people around them who are themselves very death literate, they can we can help na- those people navigate a better death. We also know if I give a really practical example, if you don't have great end-of-life planning, you don't have really strong community supports around you, and something happens if I'm an older person and I end up in hospital, I'm less likely to want to go home because I'm scared, I don't have the supports around me, I don't know what's going to happen, so I'll stay in hospital. And that costs the hospital system a lot, particularly if there's not an awful lot that the hospital can do. We know that if we have a community that has really good infrastructure and if that person has a great connected circle around them, that people want to go home. There's some, most of us as Australians, when we're surveyed, would say we would like to be able to die at home and or die by, surrounded by the people that we love. And that's actually much more likely to happen for people who we can support to die in at home. Now, absolutely, there's a place for some people to die in hospital or nursing homes, palliative care, all form a really important part of that community. But the idea of compassionate communities is that we should all be able to have choice as much as we can about what our end of life looks like and that the community should have the skills to do that. So in the study in Western Australia, there were some volunteers who were specifically trained in how to support people who were bereaved or who were caring for somebody who was dying or people who were dying. And those community connectors helped connect people with all the supports they need. And because we were able to reduce hospitalisations and reduce the time that people spent in hospital if they went, we were able to bring the cost to the health system of dying down. Probably what's more important is that the participants in those programs, both the bereaved and the uh, the connectors, both spoke about the incredible impact that it had on them in terms of, of course, it's sad when we've lost someone, but it felt like a better death. It felt like people got the experience that they would have hoped to have get and that it could be as, as good as it can be. Mm, it's interesting that you say that the the connectors, the people that were sort of enabled to have this knowledge of the system and be there to support also felt that, um, you know, for lack of a better word, life-affirming sort of <laughs> um experience through taking someone through that time of their life. I think that's a really beautiful, beautiful note. Um, Reading this research and thinking about dying to know made me think about how often around death and especially about topics about euthanasia, which is um, a different thing, but it's often rooted in talking about dignity or ensuring people have dignity at this time of their life. Do you see dying to know day and having a community-led approach as another mechanism for dignity for people at their end of life? Absolutely, absolutely. I think what what is really important is that as much as we can control our end of life, as much as we can plan for it and then, uh, you know, have the experience that we want or we want our loved ones to have, the more we're able to articulate that and plan for it, the more likely it is that we're going to get the type of death that we want. And I think that's really what self-empowerment is about. That's the idea is that we say, well, I'm, I'm, I have the right to choose. You know, if I'm able to, if physically I can be cared for appropriately at home, if that's where I would like to spend my final days, then I want that to happen. And I think if we're not able to 
deliver on people's rights or wishes as a community simply because we don't have the skills, then we are taking away their dignity and, in fact, in some cases, ignoring their rights. And so I think the more that we have the infrastructure and the skills as a community and the more compassion we have for people and respecting those rights, whatever those end-of-life choices are, the more likely it is that we're, we're going to, as a community, do a better job of death and dying. Mm. So today, like I said, uh, Tuesday 8th of August is Dying to Know Day and there is an event today at New South Wales Parliament House called Compassionate Communities, Key to a Better Death. Can you tell our listeners a bit about this event and for those here in Melbourne, can you tell people how they can get involved? Absolutely. So the event that we're having today in um, the New South Wales Parliament House um, is uh, to share that research, the research that you were just talking about that came out of the project in Bunbury, Western Australia, the Connected Communities Project. This is our chance to really use that research to really showcase to policymakers and funders how important it is that we invest in community-led end-of-life initiatives. So that's what we're doing there. It's really an opportunity for us to sort of sing it from the rooftops with a big stage. Um, Probably what's more core to Dying to Know Day, which has been, Dying to Know Day has been operating for about 10 years now, is we have had in that time over 950 community-led events. So anyone can register to have a Dying to Know Day event. And really, you can have an event of any kind. It's just something that you're doing to help raise awareness or have discussions with complete strangers or your workmates or with people that you love in your family or friends circle to be able to talk more about death and share resources or share information or ask questions even. So this year, for example, we've got about 160 events that are registered around the country, including many in Victoria, and they're everything from death cafes, which is really a cool name for people who get together and have coffee and chat about what their end-of-life planning might look like or to help share information they have about the death system. Um, We have people who are doing death over dinner, so they're holding a dinner with family and friends and they're uh, using that opportunity to talk about death. We've got some community groups who are doing some big art installations to help raise awareness around death and death literacy, and it's absolutely not too late. It doesn't take long to organise a morning tea in your lunchroom at work. You can jump on and register an event now and still access all the resources. They're all free. And to be able to share some information around that. So I would encourage all of your listeners, at the very least, walk away from this this conversation and have a conversation with your family or friends or the people closest to you about what you might like your end of life to look like. Ask them if they've thought about their end of life and what if something happened to them, what they would like to do. But if you do have, you know, five minutes spare and you want to take everyone for coffee at lunchtime and do a death cafe, definitely I would recommend it. It's a great way to open up the conversation and Having dying to know that really just gives the people gives people an excuse to open up that dialogue. Hmm. Well, thank you, Kaz. That's all we have time for this morning. But thanks so much for joining us on Three CR to talk about dying to know day. Thanks so much for having me. We've been chatting with Kaz Dawson, CEO of CCMB, an independent not-for-profit community legal organisation which focuses on supporting people to navigate the health and social care systems. Kaz has been telling us about Dying to Know Day, an annual not-for-profit campaign enabling Australians to improve their death literacy, and you can find out more at dyingtoknowday.com. We'll be right back after these messages. 
The rate of tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian serrated tussock working party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to play you another song now. This is by Tiffy, who is a young musician from Western Sydney. This is her latest track, California, which came out late last month. song was called California by Tiffy. On August the 6th, uh, it was the 78th anniversary of the dropping of the atom bomb on Hiroshima. To reflect on this anniversary in light of August and Australia's costly nuclear submarine deals, Annie McLaughlin spoke with Shirley Winton from No AUKUS Coalition Victoria ahead of the rally on Sunday. Shirley also spoke about the danger of Australia following the US into war and the movement to develop a nuclear-free and peaceful Asia-Pacific. And we've got Shirley Winton from No AUKUS Coalition, Victoria on the line. G'day, Shirley. How are you? Uh, good morning, Annie. Yes, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, the uh, 78th anniversary of the US dropping of nuclear bombs in Australia is cozying up to the US. It's all rather uh, frightening. It certainly is. It's, um, particularly, I think, this year and over the last few years, but this year, um, after the Osmond, the Australia-US ministerial talks, 
which has incredibly accelerated the militarisation, uh, US militarisation of Australia and, and the Pacific. Um, it is the Hiroshima and Nagasaki a sobering, uh, a sobering reminder that uh, we must stop the march to war. That it's in the hands of the people now. Um, and we must, and the potential for nuclear war is, is growing. Um, you know, we're talking about now the uh, Australia being visited by nu- not just nuclear-powered submarines, but also warships uh, carrying, potentially carrying nuclear nuclear weapons. The B-52 bombers, the US B-52 bombers, with uh, I think there's six or eight of them that are going to be based uh, in Northern Territory outside Darwin, um, also potentially carrying the uh, carrying nuclear weapons. And this is at a time when um, when our Australian Minister, um, Penny Wong, has said that she respects uh, the US policy of neither confirming nor denying whether they're, whether they're war, um, you know, um, whether their ships, warships and um, planes um, are carrying nuclear weapons um, in sovereign, so-called sovereign countries. So um, I think it is it is really timely to mobilise um, against AUKUS and against nuclear submarines and to demand the Australian government to, to be, you know, to defend our sovereignty. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because uh, they made the announcement. It was a Morrison announcement uh, about AUKUS. It's uh, the uh, Albanese government's completely in lockstep. Uh, people went to the election, I'm sure, with uh, a hope that this would actually not happen. Uh, Now we're getting further announcements that uh, deals are being made to use Perth as a parking spot for American nuclear subs and UK subs uh, uh, as early as uh, 2027, very, very soon, in fact. Yeah, well, that's, that's right, and that's where that's where it's been a surprise to many people—a big surprise that a Labor government would um, would follow the the you know the psychophantic Liberal government, uh, previous government. Um, so subservient to the US, that the Labor government would um, would show a little bit more of a backbone in standing up for the US, in showing a bit of sovereignty. Um, this has really nothing to do with defence of, you know, security of Australia's people. The $368 billion spent on nuclear subs. And I must remind people that that's $368 billion. That's, that's going to blow out extraordinary. It'll be over half a trillion. So we will be basically spending on making Australia a... Um, uh, we're already making Australia a, a, um, a US military base and... Uh, and are looking at for U.S. war. Um, it's locking Australia into into a war, into a war between basically U.S. and China. Um, and it, it is, as I said, um, there's a lot of people who are, you know, really quite shocked that a Labor government would go all all the way with the USA, um, as they had been during the Vietnam War. We had LBJ all the way with LBJ. So now we've to revive the, the slogan of all the way with um, USA. And the Labor government is, in fact, is, um, is so tied into the into US military in 
enforcing and, you know, upholding what's called the U.S. Uh, rules-based order, the U.S. global rules-based order, which has nothing to do with promoting peace. It's all about maintaining your supremacy around the world. And in our region, um, uh, the role of Australia is now becoming a, well, still is, but even more so as a deputy sheriff imposing and enforcing that U.S. rules-based order. Um, so it, it is, you know, there are a lot of people that are obviously very surprised by it. But, you know, the, the, the other side of it is that it has unleashed a real outcry. So there's more and more ALP rank and file members. There's people right in the community, in unions, uh, passing motions, coming out and condemning authors and nuclear submarines, which are going to tie us into the US um, foreign policy. So, look, I should say, the other thing that this is all all exposes is the level and the extent of the, of you know, of US embedded in Australia politically and ideologically, economically and militarily. So, um, you know, the, 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 some, you know, over the years, people have said Australia is a 51st state of the US. Well, certainly it's now becoming one now. Yeah, it's, it's really, really quite disturbing that um, there is so little uh, public access to this decision making. Uh, I mean, people are, like you say, being, I mean, Australia is being forcibly uh, locked down to generations of um, kowtowing to the Americans who, I mean, really... The track record isn't very good with the, for uh, the American decision-making when it goes into wars. It's really about large business creating the uh, uh, environment for perpetual war, which is a very science fiction story um, storyline, isn't it? Perpetual war. Well, that's right. And, and who are the, you know, who are the beneficiaries? Um, of of this of the enormous militarization of of wars, it's the weapons manufacturers like never like never before, and I think one of these dark examples is the militarization of education in Australia, where you've got Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, um, Holyburn, BAE, who are who are now embedded in Australian universities who in Australian universities are now dependent on the funding from this multinational weapons corporation. So the research that, that you know, there's no independent research. There's the, the indoctrination into our education system, into our education system. It's so extensive. But it, ex- it extends beyond the universities. Now, the, this multinational weapons corporations, and most of them are, you know, like uh, US and British, um, they're now in, in, um, jointly, with the support of the education departments around the country, are running programs, uh, programs that are initiated by the weapons corporations, and they're doing it under, under the STEM, the science, technology, engineering, and now we're saying the end is standing for military. So that, for instance, in primary and secondary schools now, um, there's a program under STEM 
where students are being asked to design nuclear-propelled submarines. And, um, and the, you know, and it's, in, it's designed in a form of competition and prizes. Yeah, normalization. Normalization. It's the propaganda. And, and as you said earlier, what is really shocking is, 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 is the role of the, of the media. You don't hear the voices in mainstream media. Not even a, you know, not even like a whisper of questioning the awkward, the deep implications about our sovereignty, the deep implications about war. Uh, you don't hear any whispers in the mainstream media. Or in, you know, so it is. It is. It is turning Australia into into a fifty first state, and there's no questioning. But the interesting thing is that there was a um, poll uh, by um, uh, Deloitte Institute a few months ago, which asked uh, the question was whether the, whether people would support Australia allying itself with China or with Russia in the event of war, or to remain neutral. The majority, over 50 percent, I think there were about fifty-four percent, have said that they want Australia to, ma- to remain neutral if there is a war. And seventy, at least seventy percent, of women said they want Australia to remain neutral. And the majority of young people who were polled said also said they want Australia to remain neutral. And then when you sort of think about the the massive propaganda, you know, the carpet bombing in, that's going on now in our media and everywhere, that you have that response, I, I think it's really hostile. And, um, and in, in the sense that, you know, there is a real, there's a sense that people don't want to go into another war with the US. Well, you know, anybody with half a brain would know that uh, uh, the... Um generational trauma of, of a war is just so extreme for ordinary people and uh, workers are the ones who go and die. Um, none of the people in their plush seats. But uh, you've recently been communicating with people from New Zealand and getting a perspective from outside Australia of uh, what people are thinking about Australia's move towards nuclear uh, nirvana. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting. We invited a couple of us from ICANN. We invited to speak at a at a webinar uh, that was being run last Sunday um, by peace uh, activists in New Zealand, um, and that were it was the purpose of the webinar was to exchange um, you know knowledge about about the peace movement, the anti-war, the anti-imperialist movement in both countries. And, you know, we, we gave quite long talks. I think that between the two of us, there was 45 minutes uh, that we described the situation in Australia. And they were really shocked. The New, uh, the New Zealand um, activists were really shocked at that, the level of the penetration of the U.S. And what shocked them even more was that there was so little resistance to it. They have a history, you know, that they kept asking us and saying, well, what about, what about, you know, our price? And we said, well, they are, they are there. People are really angry. But it's all being muzzled. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, the, the, the intensity of the propaganda is so huge that it's hard to get the voices out, the people's voices out. And that was one of the reasons why IPAN, in, in Independent Peaceful Australia Network, we did a, um, a, a people, in people's inquiry 
into the US-Australia alliance. And that was important. And we should need to continue finding ways to, um, to, to give platform to people's voices. And that's why 3CR is important. Going back to New Zealand, though, um, they have, interestingly, they have a strong sense of that sovereignty about their country. Um, and it probably goes back 50 years ago when they banned nuclear, nuclear ships uh, visiting New Zealand. And also they, um, they campaigned really hard. It was an intense campaign for nuclear free New Zealand. And they won. And through that campaign, the, the consciousness about independence and sovereignty and about the people of, the, of New Zealand making the decision about you know what a um, New Zealand foreign policy should be and whether they should be new, and who should whether they should have nuclear submarines or nuclear weapons um, in any way based in their country. But New Zealand is part of the Five Eyes. That's the only part of the foreign policy that that's tied to the US and tied to what they call imperialism. But I think even more significant in New Zealand is the Maori Party. And the Maori Party is quite vocal. And they said, you know, they've got elections coming up in October. And the Maori Party has come up with a very strong policy um, opposing Maori um, New Zealand or Aotearoa um, to be part of any war alliance, to be part of the American War Alliance. And um, they've said in, in some of the uh, literature, They've said, or they've come out the uh, the, the co-leader, Debbie Nagara Packer, um, said, this I'm quoting her here, we will no longer be a political football in the wars of imperial powers. We will no longer act as a Pacific spy base for five eyes. We have determined a Maori-centric foreign policy and a Maori-centric defence policy shaped for us and by us without selling our trading, our mama, but just simply asserting it. And then she goes on and says, the time for war, killing and imperialism is over. So, um, and Maori's make a significant chunk of the New Zealand military as well. So the Maori party has said that um, it's likely that the result of the elections is going to be a coalition. They said that they will support the coalition or whichever party wins, only if that party accept their policy on independence and sovereignty and that they would not be part of, of you know, of, of the US or any foreign power military uh, agenda. And also they're opposed to Five Eyes. And as you know, the Five Eyes Alliance, that's a very significant um, um, instrument used by the, by the US. Yeah, yeah, it it, it uh, fuses Australian foreign policy in inverted commas with the American agenda. We're, I mean, we're just an adjunct of their foreign policy. Oh, that's right, and I and I think that this, the developments in Mary in um, New Zealand, Aotearoa, are very significant, and uh, the Maori Party has a very strong following, apparently, um, and that you know that for us to watch and to learn. Well, well, you know, the thing about it is Australia's actions in this area, uh, I mean, I didn't mean foreign policy, I mean uh, defence policy. It effectively has an effect on the foreign policy and our role in the Pacific is um, is offset by this 
kowtowing to the Americans' war machine. Yeah, well, yeah, there was also a sort of microspace thing that is actually implement, basically implementing um, the, the U.S. defence foreign policies in Asia Pacific. Australia has now decided, clearly decided, that it's uh, tying itself into the U.S. rules-based global order. You know, and and it's simply, is there any difference in the Australian foreign policy to America's foreign policy? Or defence, there's none, none whatsoever. Now, Julian Assange is just one, you know, stark example. Yeah, he's um, the he's the canary in the in the uh, mine, if you ask yeah. me. Yeah, that's really well put. That's really well put on it. Mm. And our defence is so military, it's so integrated, uh, and and enmeshed in the US defence and uh, foreign policies. And dressed up as, as yeah, and dressed up as defending Australia—that it's about defending Australia—but of course it's not. None of these uh, missiles or any of these things are actually uh, around uh, defending a, a country. They're about attacking. But um, we'll all have to be there tomorrow, won't we? Well, yeah, that's right. I have just, just the one one thing that I, I do want to add. I know we're running out of time. Is that. Um, there are talks about developing a, a, a nuclear-free and peaceful Asia-Pacific. So we are having discussions with New Zealand, with people in South Korea, people in uh, Guam, in um, and, and in, in Japan, uh, Okinawa. So I think that that's a really positive movement that will develop. So that was a conversation that Annie McLaughlin had on Solidarity Breakfast with Shirley Winton from No AUKUS Coalition Victoria, marking the 78th anniversary of the dropping of the atom bomb on Hiroshima on the 6th of August. We have some tracks coming up for you next. Uh, this one is Pretty One by Emma Donovan. Emma Donovan is a Yamachi and Gumbanger singer-songwriter. The next song is from her 2020 album, Crossover. Who will be that one That will be with you in this life And the downs Find a way to stay above And like the rainbows in the sky Hey, you caught my
Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. Just before those messages there, we listened to Emma Donovan. Uh, Before our next interview, we're going to play you a track by South Korean girl group New Jeans, and this is their new track, Super Shy, from their latest EP. Super Shy by New Jeans. All right, next up, we are going to be speaking with Nisha Tapliel and Saba Zaidi Abdi. Since the Hindu nationalist Bhatia Janta Party was elected in 2014, 
India has seen a steady increase in violence against minorities and discrimination based on caste and religion. Muslims in particular have been a target of the BJP's Hindu nationalist agenda. Nisha Tapliyal is an academic at the University of Newcastle who is researching social justice activism in the contemporary Indian diaspora. Saba Zaidi Abdi is an experienced Muslim journalist, creative director and actor from India who has lived in Australia for over 30 years. They are joining us on the show this morning to talk about the escalating violence against Muslims in India. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, Nisha and Saba. Thank you, Kanagi. Have I got you both on the line? Yes, good morning. How are you? We're very well. How are you both? Good, thank, thank you. you. Well, it's lovely to have you both on the show this morning. Um, let's start by just kind of having a little bit of an overview of the BJP. As we know, they've had a long history of spreading anti-Muslim hate and propaganda even before they were elected. Uh, Nisha, could you maybe talk to us a little bit about this? Sure, Kanagi. Firstly, thank you to you and to 3CR for having us on this show to talk about uh, the terrible things happening in India. Before I begin, I would also like to acknowledge uh, the traditional custodians of the lands, waterways, and airways from which I join you, the Awabakal clan of the uh, Pamalong Nation. I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and also to any um, Aboriginal people who might be listening in. Thank you. So to uh, very quickly, um, so the Bharatiya Janata Party are a political party. They are the political wing of a 100-year-old uh, Hindu nationalist movement. Um, uh, so 1920s, it began to form around 1925. This was primarily, initially, a movement of dominant caste Hindu men, it needs to be said. It also needs to be said that they were in conversation with and deeply influenced by the European fascisms that we see uh, in Europe at that time of the world. And so you see the, uh, the founding fathers, if you will, um, using the same language of racial supremacy, um, ethnic cleansing, purity, and so forth. And they actually modeled their core organization, um, which is a sort of paramilitary uh, organization called the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh. I'll just refer to them as the RSS from now on. So the RSS, the way it's organized, the way they train, recruit, and train their cadre uh, is very heavily influenced by the black shirts, Mussolini's black shirts in Italy. Um, so uh, since then, it has grown into a vast uh, movement. Uh, some parts of it are highly organized and centralized, but there are also um, less formal uh, groups and uh, organizations working with this sort of triumvirate of the RSS, the BJP, um, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, VHP, the World Hindu Council. Um, interestingly, we have a chapter of the VHP right here in Australia, um, and they are permitted to provide um, special religious education, Hinduism, in New South Wales public schools. Um, what else should um, the listeners know? So, yes, even though they were banned multiple times in the first 50 years of their existence, around the 70s and 80s, things changed drastically, um, and they began to uh, come into the mainstream. They began to win elections. Um, you know, they began to uh, rule state governments, particularly in northern India. And so Modi's election in 2014 comes 
uh, at that point in the trajectory of this movement, right? Um, and this was certainly not the first time the Bharatiya Janata Party had won national elections. Um, they first came to national power in, in the 2000s. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much for that context. Uh, I know this is a really big subject, so... Um, but it's good to, for listeners to have that bit of context. I especially think it's really good for listeners to have the context of um, the language and the ties to, to what was happening in Europe as well. I think that's not very commonly discussed, so that's really good to know. Mm -hmm. So despite India being a secular country historically, um, with one of the highest Muslim populations in the world, it's now a super hyper-polarized atmosphere where we're seeing violence against Muslims and Islamophobia escalate across the country. Just last week, a guard shot his colleague and innocent passengers on a train. Sabah, can you tell us a bit about this incident and how it's linked to the government steadily pushing this anti-Muslim rhetoric? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and you see, as um, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me over on the show. And, um, and just uh, as uh, Nisha mentioned, in recent years, we've seen that BJP rule um, emergence of consistent and planned persecution and religious vilification of minorities, and basically, namely the the Muslims, and it has spread to Christians. I mean, what happened in Manipur recently was against uh, ethnic um, uh, groups or who follow Christianity, and similarly Sikhs and other scheduled castes and tribes. So this is an ongoing attack on mosques, prayer places, um, which is also include the lynching, targeted minorities, um, events, and they go and they burn their businesses, they burn their houses, and uh, all sorts of ugly and inhumane uh, persecution is happening across India. Recently, um, last week, we have seen there were three incidents that happened in Haryana. Uh, one was uh, then in train, uh, a constable uh, uh, who's supposed to be protecting the passengers on the train uh, went on a rampage and shot uh, one senior uh, constable, one senior officer of his, and then he went in the uh, train and picked up, hand-picked uh, Muslim-looking people with beards, and shot them one by one. And there is a video which uh, I have read about is that he actually put his foot on the chest of one of the uh, killed person and said, if you have to live in India, you have to vote uh, Yogi and uh, for BJP. Um, so this is, this is what is the level of violence. And similar incident in Mewat, uh, which is... Uh, 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 now known as No, which is on the border of Haryana and Rajasthan, and which is predominantly a Muslim uh, majority area who have lived there for centuries. And there has been uh, violence against them, which was done by BJP, uh, supported uh, Bharatiya, uh, sorry, BHP, Vishnu Hindu Parishad, and Bajrang Dal. And they incited the whole, uh, you know, they held rallies under the nose of the administration and government, which turned a blind eye. In fact, they have a protection and support of a lot of these law-enforcing 
um, agencies, including police and um, judiciary and in, uh, civil administration. So we saw that they, um, I was watching the video last night, and I saw that this was being done in broad daylight when people who are a criminal record, uh, people like Manu, Manish Mansur, whatever his name is, he was, uh, he's uh, been, uh, you know, he, he was involved uh, for two murders of Nasir and Junaid in um, a month ago or even less than that. So these Gaurakshaks and uh, they were instigating violence, asking people to march with them to no district, and it was happening right under the nose of I saw the police were standing there and no one was stopping. And then they went on a, uh, they, the mob moved and they went and uh, then there was a resistance. And the social media plays a very important role there in a sense that people are constantly, hate messages are being sent and uh, mobs have been gathered using that uh, social media. And uh, then there was violence that happened, the resistance from the other side. And there were six people who died in that process. There was also an attack in Gurgaon, uh, which is supposed to be a very high-tech area, where uh, a mob uh, attacked a mosque. It is uh, called the Majlis Mosque. And they went inside, and there were six policemen watching the whole thing while thousands of people walked in. They burned the mosque. They went and killed a 19-year-old uh, Nayab Imam, uh, Imam Saad, who is, uh, you know, who is actually a great promoter of uh, harmony and um, mm. brotherhood amongst the amongst the Muslims. And, uh, you know, I heard a video of him saying that, oh my God, when will the day will come that Hindu and Muslim will share the same plate of food and turn my country into the blissful place. So all these kinds of things were happening. And now, They've gone and there's been a curfew imposed and, of course, the first thing they do is to uh, cut the Internet out and there is no uh, communication, therefore, a deep sense of fear. People are fleeing their homes. Businesses have been burned. There has been a huge violence and uh, there's still a state of curfew. And uh, certainly Muslims at this stage in India are feeling deeply insecure and what is worse is that there is no protection from law enforcing agencies. And what is very shameful is that nobody comes and condemns these events in India. So this is becoming a norm in today's mm -hmm. India where vigilante groups, the the mm -hmm. ka, the, ka, uh, the uh, Gauraksha groups which are uh, trying to protect so-called the, the, the cow, uh, plotters, etc. In the name of religion, people are really being persecuted, especially the minorities. And I've been talking to a lot of people, and people feel extremely uh, vilified, extremely marginalized, and there is no one to come and protect them. So basically, a secular country has turned into a violent um, country. And, and and what is happening is that there is no accountability on mm -hmm. part of administration. They can go escort free people who are, uh, you know, uh, who are uh, have been charged for murders are roaming freely. 
And so these, these kind of groups have complete support of the government. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's clear that that's the case by the brazen nature of these incidents. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, people are being shot on trains, people are filming it. Um, you know, entire cities are being... And watching the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's very clear that they're getting this confidence and almost being instructed from somewhere, you yes. know? Yeah. Um, and the whole dehumanization that is happening, you see, in the country, mm. people are taking it as a normal norm. It is okay to have violence against Muslims. It's something, it reminds me so much of Germany where Jews were just targeted mm. for being Jews. So it is turning very ugly. And, you know, there's 20% of that population approximately uh, is Muslim. Exactly. Um, And I think it's also interesting, the stark contrast of, you know, Modi's visit to Australia and Mm -hmm. the way in which he's treated here. And, you know, he has Mm -hmm. this huge support from the Indian diaspora, not just in Australia, but, you know, around the world. and I think, you know, that's that's emboldening the government and funding the government in lots of ways as yeah. well, you know. Um, Nisha, can you talk to us a bit about that contrast and, you know, how uh, the Indian diaspora plays a part in this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, the movement began to organize in the diaspora systematically in the 70s and the 80s. And as I've already told you, they're highly organized, uh, extremely well-resourced. So they are very well-established now um, in uh, places like, um, you know, Turtle Island, the United States, uh, to a lesser extent in Canada, definitely the U.K., um, you know, and also countries where you have twice Price and four times migrants, right? Um, uh, places where Indians were taken as indentured laborers uh, and so forth, you know, across the Caribbean, Suriname, Guyana, Fiji, much closer to home. So to make the point that um, cultivating the diaspora has always been a strategic aim mm. and they've gone about it with the same thoroughness that they do everything else, um, and I think Sabha mentioned uh, how what an important role social media plays in this movement. But I would add that they have always used media very effectively, right? So up till the eight, you know before digital media, they had their own publishing houses, and they churned out an amazing amount of propaganda and misinformation and hate, right, against Muslims and Christians, and also to draw to create this. Um, um, this idea that all Hindus were the same and therefore should be unified against these foreign threats. And that message of a global Hindu identity has seems to have appealed very strongly since they started doing it. Okay, so that's one part of the picture. And then there's, of course, Modi, who has his personal cult of personality that I think we all know very well. Uh, Modi, again, is a very smart user of media. He was the first, as chief minister of Gujarat, to hire American, um, you know, public relations uh, people to run his elections and run his administration. And he's just gotten bigger and better at it. As you know, this has been amply documented in, in you know, everywhere. So in terms of who his following are, 
that's a much more complicated question, right? There are obviously the the movement members, right? The, uh, the hardcore RSS members, uh, BJP members, the HP members, all these different groups and organizations. I think your listeners might also be interested to know that I would say 70% of their work is done through education, cultural activities, and volunteering and civic service, right? Mm -hmm. So you can see how people who are just looking for belonging, uh, for a sense of national pride, all these positive things might be attracted to these spaces, right? And then they unknowingly oftentimes become part of this much bigger monster that we're talking about now. So, yeah, in terms of Modi's following, it's a really mixed bag. There are the hardcore Hindutva activists, but there are also a lot of people who just, you know, living outside India who feel, um, you know, that uh, they haven't been able to set down roots in some uh, Western country where they've settled. Um, you know, they've experienced racism, discrimination, even hate, right? Um, and for those reasons, they find Modi's very masculine, uh, should I should say toxic masculine nationalist messages very appealing. They, you know, they give him a sense of, uh, he gives them a right. sense of pride is what they tell us. And the third piece of this is we can't let Western governments off the hook, right? So let's remember that Modi was actually denied a U.S. visa for 10 years after um, there was a Muslim genocide in his home state of Gujarat in 2002, and activists in the U.S. versus were able to lobby successfully to ensure that he couldn't visit the U.S. for 10 years because he was a frequent visitor before that. He's a very, very yeah. well-traveled act politician, right? Um, and then, of course, he was elected in 2014, and all that changed overnight. Obama, you know, praised him. So, of course, he enjoys support from all the authoritarian, anti-democratic um, leaders like himself, but he's also been repeatedly given legitimacy by every, you know, from by Obama, by Biden. I mean, you know, Macron gave him some very big French medal two weeks ago, even while this violence was unfolding. So, you know, this, these contradictions are very concerning. And, of course, our own Prime Minister Albanese, who is such a staunch proponent for human rights, social justice, uh, inclusion at home, uh, has refused also to say anything. And he has been with Modi while these, you know, because now in India, this kind of violence is enacted every week, if not every day. So there's no question of saying we don't know anymore, right? And even though the media and the courts and the police are helping all of this happen, there are still some very brave independent journalists and activists who are making sure that these um, awful atrocities are not completely silenced. So, you know, this is a really complicated story, isn't it? And um, activists here have repeatedly asked both Abbott and uh, Albanese, and, you know, they're working with um, state and local governments to try and raise awareness about what's happening. Um, they've been hard at work for at least five years now, many of them yeah. for much longer in the case of Kashmir. Um, but for lots of different reasons, our politicians are prioritizing Australia's economic interests, right, um, over what's happening to Muslims and Christians and Dalits and Adivasis in India. Yeah, I'd, it's, it is in incredibly concerning. And, you know, mm -hmm. Sabah, I'd like to hear 
what you have to say based on not only your lived experience as a Muslim woman, both in India and in Australia, but also as someone who's been involved in the media, both, you know, as as a journalist, um, as well as an actor behind the cameras. Um, you know, what has your experience been over the years? Well, I think just to sort of uh, uh, add to what uh, Nisha has just said, and I think a lot of uh, minority groups are pretty active overseas as well in condemning what is happening in India. And uh, while there was this big uh, display and show of public support by non-NRI Indians overseas on um, during the overseas visit of Modi, we also see that a lot of people have boycotted. None of the minority groups were there, and there were uh, uh, various uh, protests and um, circulars have been signed by all those groups who are anti-Modi and who are, uh, you know, upholding human rights. And the whole idea, the selective uh, picking of human rights when it suits Australian government was brought to forefront by all these groups and they were criticized. And the fact that, uh, as Nisha mentioned, the economic interests have been put above everything else, which is a bit of a shame. Uh, but this is, uh, it's not that people are sitting quietly about it. There is a lot of hue and cry and noise, except that they are not as vocal and as, uh, as these uh, Hindutva groups. So they have become very strong and they are sending a lot of money and a lot of uh, support and all these big shows that they are put up in America or Australia or other countries, they are broadcast live to reinforce look what Modi has lifted up the profile of Indians and the Hindu nationalism uh, all across the world and now we are, everyone is taking notice of us, we have become important so this is the kind of psyche that they are feeding in into the majority and uh, there is a huge divide happening within the society which I feel in, in, in overseas as well a lot of uh, the Gulf, the chasm has come between different religious groups living overseas. So uh, those who are supporting BJP, they have certainly become very, you know, distant themselves from other minority groups. And this is, this is a sad reflection of what's happening in India, is also being fed into the societies overseas. But um, I think coming back to your question was that uh, India has a history of uh, communal violence and started from partition onwards, but it was never that ugly and that normalized. Mm -hmm. And it is okay now to do Muslim bashing or minorities, which is a very, very sad turn of events. And I was reading somewhere that, you know, Indian, um, the way the Indian society and the whole administration and BJP-led government is operating, we are reached a stage, we are so close to a genocide of minorities, which is very scary and very worrisome. I don't live in India anymore and therefore, but you know, I can see all the Muslim relatives, the Muslim friends, and even uh, secular-minded uh, non-Muslim friends feel extremely concerned because the fact that the fear has not set into the society. Whoever raises voice against, if you are not with me, you are against me. So uh, the media, the judiciary, everything, the academic institutions, 
there is no voice of protest. They have been silenced. I know a lot of people didn't go and protest when Modi was here because they were scared that they will lose their uh, non-resident Indian visas that they have. So, yeah, uh, which, which, yeah, I mean, they're scared to go there because, and they feel that my relatives in India will be persecuted. So, this is the kind of psyche and mindset that Indian Muslims and minorities are at this point of time. They're pretty hopeless because a lot of people feel that we have lost our battle, the genie's out of the bottle, and the, what has happened is that this communalism has not traveled to a large diaspora of uh, uh, non, I would say, the majoritarian uh, psyche. And in India, and as well as it's traveling overseas, of course, it's not violent. We have some incidents of violence here as well against Sikhs and all. But it is something that is not as ugly or as unmanaged because there is a police and law enforcing agencies active here. But in India, there is no law enforcing agency. It is free for all. And if you can protect yourself, that's good. If you don't, then, you know. You become a victim of it. Exactly. And, and that's why a very sad state of affairs. It yes. is. It absolutely is. And I think that's where lots of intersections of caste and class and wealth disparity, uh, all this comes in. You know? situation. Yeah. Exactly. Because some people have the means to protect themselves and others simply don't. Others don't. And so, I mean, a lot of people want to migrate overseas, but how many can? Yeah, you that, know? that's right. It's a 20% population, <laughs> the largest Muslim population in the world. Yeah. yeah. And... and uh, I, I don't think a lot of um, people outside of India are aware of that. You know, it is one, it is the largest population mm-hmm. of Muslims in the world. So yes. while yeah. it's a minority in India, it's actually a huge yeah. number of people. And very underprivileged. Yeah, exactly. What is, uh, they are un, uh, mostly uneducated. They don't have good, uh, you know, they're not very well employed. They are, <coughs> they don't have much faith. I mean, the fact that, on, on political level, there is hardly Muslim representation in BJP government. Mm-hmm. That's so right. They are. They are no. There is no voice that can go and defend them. So it's just a, uh, as Nisha mentioned that they are some fearless, uh, uh, you know, press who work on totally on <clears throat> on support of the their patrons. They are the people who are still putting up the fight, but Thanks. most of them have just surrendered. Exactly. And they they're they are just doing it for their own survival and benefit. So it is a very it's a very uh, a situation where no facts and figures and news reporting is done in an authentic fashion. There is a whole term called Godi media yeah. because what BJP has done, they have bought over all these people their licenses. So how and they don't get any support if they are anti uh, BJP. Exactly. So the whole environment has become. So toxic. And I think that's now why, also, especially here in Australia, I think that's why conversations like this are really important. Yeah, I think we have to keep having them. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Nisha and Sabah, we are running out of time this morning, but uh, we would love to have both of you back on the show. I feel like this is an ongoing conversation. Um, it's a really huge topic. And as, as the situation in India unfolds, We'd love to have you both back and keep the conversation going. Um, but thank you both so much for your time this morning. It really, we really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you so much. 
So that was Nisha Taplial and Sabah Zaidi Abdi talking to us about the escalating violence against Muslims in India. That brings us to the end of our show this morning. Uh, join us again next Tuesday at 7 a.m. And as always, Accent of Women is coming up next.